That was my only hope, honestly. But I knew that everything was possible through running and just going back to think about like how my life was, my childhood was. I knew there was nothing that I couldn't do. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I try to glean unique insights and uncommon inspiration from a wide range of personalities in an effort to help you see what's possible through the lens of running. This week's conversation is with Diane Nakuri, a three-time Olympian for Burundi whose career I've been following for 22 years now. Diane is an incredible athlete. She's competed in three Olympic games in three different events, and she's one of the most versatile road racers of the past decade. In this episode, we talked about her childhood in Burundi and how running came into her life. She told me how she's used running as a vehicle for exploration and opportunity from the time she was a teenager, and also what it was like to leave her home country for a track meet when she was just 16 years old, knowing she wasn't going to go back. Diane talked openly about adjusting to life in Canada and then the U.S. She told me some good stories about her partner, five-time Olympian Abdi Abdurrahman. We discussed how having a good off switch when it comes to running has helped her have a long competitive career and a lot more. Before we get into it, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're looking for a workhorse to run most of your miles in, look no further than the Fresh Foam X 1080 V12. Man, do I love this shoe. Just when I didn't think I could like the 1080 anymore, they came out with this incredible version of it. Longtime listeners will know that this has been my go-to training shoe for the past few years, and the V12 will no doubt be the shoe that I put most of my miles in for the rest of the year. The 1080 V12 has the perfect blend of cushioning and responsiveness. It's lightweight, it transitions smoothly, it has the most streamlined fit to accommodate a wide variety of foot types, and it holds up to heavy mileage week in and week out. The Fresh Foam X 1080 V12 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Check them out and give them a try today. Okay, please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation between me and Diane Nakuri. I am super excited for this conversation because I was thinking about this earlier today. You are probably the only current athlete that I can think of who I have been following for over 20 years now, besides Abdi, who we can talk about later because he just doesn't stop himself. But to rewind back to 2000, I had just graduated high school and was about to go to college. The Olympics were that year. I was really into it. And like a lot of young distance runners at that time, I was all about the 5,000 meters. So that was what I was most excited about for the Olympics. So when they came around that summer, I was looking at just all the participants from all the different countries and they had, you know, name, 
country, age. And I mean, I was 18 years old myself at the time. And I remember reading through the Women's 5000, coming across your name from Burundi, and you were 15 years old at the time. And I was like, that's amazing. I'm like, that there's a 15-year-old who is running in the Olympic Games. And you've been on my radar ever since. I mean, you've competed in two more Olympics. I really got to know you as an athlete just from watching you on the roads. Mostly you did a lot of New York Roadrunner events. I remember in the mid 2000s, I'd see your name in like mini 10K and like NYC half and the New York City Marathon, like all that sort of stuff. So I'm like beyond thrilled just to have you on the podcast because I can't believe I've been following your career for 22 years and you are still at it today. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been um, it's been a long journey. It is crazy to think about it. 2000. And I think being on the road now and just seeing how young these kids are, it's just like mind blowing. Do you feel old when you're out on the road? I mean, you were just at the mini 10K not too long ago. You've been to several other races. I mean, you're 37 yourself. What does it feel like when you're at an event now, even those events that you've been to many times by this point of your career? I don't feel old, but... I think sometimes when my my body is not cooperating with me, I definitely feel, you know, it's a little stiff when I start in the morning, but I wouldn't say I feel old. I think I have so many different friends, younger, older, and I think also, I mean, Abby's older than me, so I kind of joke around, I'm like, I'm so young. He's like, no, you're not. <laughs> so, um yeah, I guess on the road, there's very few people that, you know, that were on a circuit the same time as me early, to, you know, 2009, 2010. But honestly, I still feel as excited to be there. I love going back to these races that I've been doing for 12 years. And I think to me, to me, it's just like really exciting. I feel like they all became my family. So it's, mm-hmm. it's always exciting to go back. How do you feel about where you're at? at this point of your career at 37 years old. I mean, you mentioned how you get out of bed, you might feel like a little creaky or stiff in the morning, but when you're training and when you're racing, is it as exciting to you now as it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, like you say, you know, when I was, you know, in my early, late twenties, early thirties, like that was my best, you know, in terms of running is like, I feel really good. I didn't have to do a lot. I didn't have to do a lot of rehab before I go running. And it just came easy. I could like, do a marathon and take a week off of just traveling, eating, drinking what I wanted. And I'll come back in two weeks and run AK and go win it. The Manchester Road Race, I remember, I think, five, six years ago. I just, I, I couldn't explain. Like, I didn't do anything special, but I could actually get out of the door and do that but now if I try to do it honestly (laughs) I couldn't but I still get excited to go to these races and you know I still have like a fire in my you know belly when I go out there I still just get excited as I was I did 20 years ago if anything now I have a lot more experience I know a lot of more people running means a lot different than it did back in the day so there's always like new ways to keep it exciting and fun and do different things does it surprise you that you're still doing it at a high level into your late 30s just because you've been at it for so long? I mean, that first Olympics, you were 15. You weren't 
you know, trying to compete for a medal, super competitive, didn't get out of the heats, but you just let your passion for the sport grow from there. You eventually went on to run collegiately and you've had this incredible professional career, but there aren't many other 37 year olds who are still competing at a high level. And and as I say that, I'm thinking about Sarah Hall and Kira D'Amato. I'm like, well, maybe there are, but I mean, you're a part of that group. And I'm curious if that surprises you at all. No, it doesn't really surprise me because like you said, it's my passion. And I never, I was never the, the runner who had to run like a certain mileage. I was never, um, I didn't really surprise a lot of, you know, I, I talked to a lot of friends and, you know, friends that run and they're like, oh, I didn't go to somebody's wedding, didn't go to like my grandma, grandpa's birthday. And I always ask, why didn't you go to the birthday? Because of running. I was like, well, I love running, but I'm not going to sacrifice my whole life for it. So I've been able to kind of do it in a way where like I love doing it and it's my passion but I'm not going to sacrifice my whole life for it. And it's just part of my life, but it's really not my life. So I think that's why I still, I'm still doing it because I have a balance and um, I'll be the one going up to run, you know, Humphreys, like there's a Tolisman and Fox stuff in the middle of the training. So I do mix it up and that keeps, that really keeps, keeps me wanting to just keep doing it. And I have friends who don't run and, those people kind of keep me grounded and it's just to me it's like it is a hard job to do for a really long time but at the same time I'm not surprised I'm still doing it I, I could see another five ten years maybe not the same level that I did it ten years I just have to be realistic mm-hmm. do you have a good on and off switch so like when you're in training mode and you're say 12 weeks out from marathon you do what you need to do to buckle down and get yourself as ready as possible. But like you just described, when the race is over, you're in your off season, or even like the rest of the day when you're not training, can you just like shut that off and, you know, not be Diane the runner, be, you know, Diane the friend, you're Diane the realtor now, which I want to talk about later in this conversation. Like, take me through that. Yeah, I actually, I'm one of those people who, when I'm done training, as soon as I get home, like, I don't really talk about Ronnie unless I'm making fun of some runners. <laughs> and not in a mean way. But um, I, we don't talk, I don't talk. We have a rule even here, like, you know, with Abdi, we both run. But as soon as we get home, we really don't talk about running. It's never like, oh, I hit this pace. And every now and then, like, you know, Abdi will come home and be like, look at my tempo. And I'm like, okay, now we're done. I give him, like, five <laughs> minutes of talking about his tempo. And then we move on. Everything else, you know what, for me, when I'm training for marathon and I have a friend who wants to go get, you know, a drink or, um, you know, it's all, It's not like I'm going out to party, you know. Right. Just go get a nice dinner, nice drink, to just reset. Sometimes you don't need to talk about the long runs and the temples that you did. You just, like, go leave, you know, do other things, run some errands, um, hang out with people, talk to families. I really switch it off as I walk into the house. I love hearing that. And it's interesting that you bring up Abdi because I've always had that respect for him too. I mean, he's still at it and he's what, I mean, he's ancient at this point. He's like, what, 43, 44. Um, and still in five and still competing at a high level. And I've always just admired his ability to shut it off when it's time to shut it off. And I mean, you'd mentioned how 
you might like make fun of runners. I think we all do that because most runners, and I'm certainly guilty of this, have a hard time of just shutting it off. It's about the workout that morning and the splits that you ran and the race that you have coming up. And I've got to do like X, X, Y, and Z. But I think that ends up like shortening a lot of people's careers because it puts a lot of pressure on themselves all the time to be like all about running all the time. But if you can step away from it and have other things outside of running that interest you, it can actually make the running be more sustainable over the long haul. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of, there's no really secret to a long career, but like there's so many runners who I've run against in high, in, uh, you know, in high school and college or like top runners, like NCAA champs that were amazing. But they didn't really, I mean, it's not like they didn't last, they didn't have a long breeze because they couldn't switch off running. But I know a lot of people are very intense. And when you're intense and all you think about is running, like, one, you get injury really quick. Because I remember when I first graduated from college, I was trying to be this professional runner. So I have to do everything right. I'm always thinking about running. I'm always – I decided I wasn't even going to have, like, you know, any – beer a glass of wine for three months and I was just miserable and I was running really bad and I was like okay I gotta go back to being myself because I'm running because I love it it's not because of money or winning medals but we're all different and wanting different things but for me like being happy comes first and I'm gonna do things that are going to really help me to have like a long successful career and even after I'm done running competitively I want to be able to enjoy it, not just doing it as like a punishment. I don't like to punish myself. I do it because one, I stay in shape. Two, I get to make a living, which that's a plus. So, I mean, I can't really complain. I feel like I don't need to be intense about it. You sound like a happy whole person to me and not just the badass runner that is part of who you are. I am really happy. I think that's also like part of who I am. It's not like I'm like, yeah, I work on myself and all that, but I just happen to be a really happy person. I love to have fun. I love to run hard. I love to involve, like, you know, my friends with what I do, and I love to get to know what they do. To me, it's, like, kind of social hour when we're out there running, and that's that's what I look forward to. Not necessarily, you know, the tempos and the long runs. That's just more, like, RD stuff. But, you know, we're all different, and I respect that, and he has to respect how I do my thing. <laughs> We talked at the beginning of this conversation about how you competed in the Olympics at the age of 15. So you were a competitive runner from a young age. I don't know that I've ever really heard your origin story in the sport, but how old were you when you started running and how did you get into it at a competitive level? I was 14 when I started and, um, Competitively, it just happened really quick. Like when I went to the Olympics, I think I was running like 16, I would say 30 something or 40, 45. I'm not, I think I forgot. It's been a long time. But I just went to the Olympics because I was the fastest female runner in my country. And I think they do that for every country where they send one fastest female on that one event who has a potential. So I think it's like just to encourage you to go see, you know, international competition, what it's all about. So I think it happened so fast for me that I did the first race and then I won it and I started going to the city. So I was born and raised in a village where 
women weren't even allowed to run until today. There's very few people that run. So I used to just basically escape home for a day and go to a race and then just tell my brother and come back at the end of the day. And a lot of times my mom used to like punish me because I wasn't allowed and I would just have to make up things because she was very protective of us of being a single mom with eight kids. So all this running happened, I wouldn't say by accident, but it happened so quick for me that I went from running starting at 14 and at 15 going to the Olympics and 16 moving to Canada and eventually coming to the U.S. for scholarship. How did you get started at age 14? I mean, you mentioned how you would leave and go to the city secretly to run these races, but what made you want to do that? Like what lit that spark for you? Um, I had a lot of siblings and I'm fifth in my family. So I was the middle kid that nobody really cared about. I mean, they loved me, <laughs> but they didn't pay attention to me. And I, I, I think I remember going to school, even going to school for me was a struggle. I used to ask my mom, I was like, you know, since we don't have a lot of money for school, can you just pull me out so I can just sell avocados? I wanted to do things that were more exciting. School to me was not exciting. Like just walking to school two to three miles and back and always be the first one at home because of my mom was always watching. And we would just go from school to doing chores. And I feel like I did a lot more because my older siblings were in school and my younger sisters were very spoiled. So for me, I did it so I can just, I never had never been into a car, you know, I just wanted to go for a weekend and not even miss my siblings because I saw them every single day, 24 seven. So it was just for me to get away it had nothing to do with, Oh, could I go to school because of running? Could I make money? It was not, had nothing to do with that. It was just so I can just go away. Yeah. Kind of like an opportunity to get out of your village and see what existed beyond mm-hmm. and eat different food, drink Fanta, <laughs> things I can get at home. You know, it is hard when you're always home and doing the same thing every day. Were you competitive from a young age? I mean, you showed a lot of promise early on. I mean, within your first year of running to run 60 and something for 5,000 or whatever it was and represent your country at the Olympics. But did you have a competitive streak in you early on when you were doing these races? Um, yeah, so that I can, you know, leave in my village. But it was in the, I'm not really the most competitive person, like, if we're out there playing games, unless I enjoy the game, I don't even bother. I'd rather just sit and just chat with my friends. So I wouldn't, but when, when it's about competition, I mean, it's on, you know, like it just, it's just like a quick switch. And, but I also know how to switch it off right away. Yeah. So it was more like, oh, I can get that. Okay. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Even when it comes to other things, school uh, or work, I will hustle for like a good two, three hours. And I'm like a last minute, but I would do everything. And I would just like, I would do everything in my power and be done. And then when I'm done, I feel like I want a medal. <laughs> you originally started running to just get out of your village and go to the city and see what existed beyond. And within a year, you got to leave your country and go to the Olympics and see another part of the world. And I know it was what a year or so after that, or within a year that you went to Canada again for, for running and, you know, never went back to Burundi, at least at the time, eventually came to the U S went to college and and did all of that, which I want to talk about. But when you went to 
the Olympics for the first time, aside from going there and representing your country, did you ever have a moment where you're like, wow, like this this thing that I, I did running has given me this opportunity to now even go beyond the village into the city, but I'm seeing parts of the world that many people from where you grow up will never get. Yeah, I, I just remember when I... I was told, like when I was still 14 in 1999, before Sydney Olympics, um, they told me that I could go to Uganda. But I thought we were going to go on a plane, but it's like, oh, we're going by bus. And I was like, oh, that's disappointing because I was on a bus the last few months. We just go into the city. So it wasn't like anything different. But I just remember the first time I got on a plane, we went to South Africa. And I just like remember I was so scared to just be on a plane for the first time. But I just kind of couldn't believe, like, from the village where I grew up, I would always remember. I mean, until today, there's not a day that goes by without thinking about where I was born, where I come from, and the things that I'm able to do today. But back, back then, I was just like, I mean, I was in a dream. And sometimes I feel like I'm still in a dream. But honestly, I couldn't believe that I went to, you know, Sydney and I came back to my village and went to school just like every other kid. And people would just look at me like, oh, why are you here? You know, you like have millions of dollars. I was like, I don't have millions of dollars, but I did get, you know, uh, pocket money. They'll give us, give you money to spend when you're the Olympics. And if you compare it to my village friends, I mean, I was rich. Right. <laughs> and, and then for that too, like it meant a lot of just bring able to like bring something to my family. Um, I remember I bought a CD of um, Celine Dion on my way back from Sydney and it was $20. And I thought I was like, I made it. Like, I mean, that was bigger than the Olympics because I used to listen to Celine Dion with my mom's little radio and just being able to purchase uh, a $20 CD at the airport. And listen whenever you want. Yeah. 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 That's incredible. I'm interested, like when you went to, maybe it was South Africa or maybe it was Sydney when you you left your country for the first time. I mean, because, you know, where someone grows up, like, you know what you know, you know, you know, what's there for you. That was your village in Burundi. For me, that was the town I grew up in in central Massachusetts. And you don't really know anything different until you're exposed to it. What were your initial impressions of just say South Africa when you went there for the first time, or maybe it was the Olympics and you're meeting people from around the world and, you know, experiencing different cultures and traditions and all kinds of stuff like that. I was so scared. I was just staring at everybody. I didn't speak the language. I only spoke Kirundi, which is an alien language. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit of French because I was still, I was still young and you don't really become fluent in French until you finish at least high school. So at that time for me, like I, I had a big team from Burundi that were much older. I mean, you know, some of these people were mid mid twenties and uh, the officials would be kind of like, you know, like moms and dads. And so for me, I just watched people. Um, I just kind of watched how things were, you know, what people did, what people um, I couldn't understand what they said, but for me, it was like looking around um, everything that was different from my village and just being in like, you know, South Africa with all the lights. I was so overwhelmed, but in a good way. For me, it was like I didn't really get to 
take a moment and kind of enjoy, I guess, myself until I was in Canada. Once I started like kind of learning a little bit of English. And then when I came to the U.S., it's like I start kind of thinking back when I was 14 and 15 and traveling and everything kind of started making sense. But I think when I first leave, started leaving my village, it was overwhelming. People, A lot of people look different. You know, I've only saw at that point up until 14, I've never seen white people. I've never seen Asians. I've never seen Indians, all these different people. So for me, that was very new, you know. I imagine some people in that situation couldn't wait to return to their village and just stay there and be like, this is what I know. This is where I'm comfortable. So I'm just going to stay here. You did the exact opposite of that. I mean, you continued to compete as an athlete. And as you mentioned, you went to Canada and basically never left. I mean, you eventually went to the U.S. and gained citizenship, I think, five years ago or so. But did you know from those initial experiences of going to South Africa, going to the Olympics, that you knew that Burundi wasn't where you wanted to be long term? It wasn't necessarily my choice to leave Burundi, but I knew that during a time when from 1999 to 2000, early 2000, like 2001, actually for the almost the two years. So Burundi wasn't stable. So I remember there was one incident when I went to the capital city and we did a, a national meet and then I took a bus back and it was during a civil war where I was on the bus on my way home and there was a guy who was in the military who got shot and then died. I've never seen really anybody like a dead body right next to me. And that really shook me. Oh God! So when I got home, I was just shaking and I felt like, oh, I should have listened to my mom because my mom was telling me, I want you to stay safe. So, and to go from the capital city to my village, you're going from sea level to like 7,000 feet. There's all these really scary road, rolling roads. And that was really scary to me. And I think that was kind of like my wake up call. I was like, if I really want to continue this, you know, wasn't even as a career. If I want to keep running and, you know, traveling, you know, seeing different people and having all these opportunities, I have talked to my brother about it because my mom was never really on board with me leaving. And I said, I'm going to have to go, even though I'm going to leave everybody behind. But I think when you're young, you're a lot more brave. So I decided, well, I know I was going to, I knew I was going to go to Canada. And after all the incident and, you know, taking the dead body to the family and seeing the family crying, I was just so paranoid. And I just decided I told my mom before I went to Canada and I said, I'm going to stay. And I did have a, a cousin in Canada, but I think I made that decision because in my family, coming from a family of eight kids with a single mom and having, you know, lost my dad when I was nine. And I just knew that I was the only person who had that opportunity and my siblings were in school, but they hadn't started to make money. But I knew that I was going to be the one who was going to kind of help them, support them. And because no, nobody else had the chance to fly. Nobody has the chance to be competitive internationally. And I already had that. I feel like I was a chosen one. And I just 
I just went for it and I didn't see my family until like eight years later. It was the craziest eight years of my life. Man, what a, I mean, what a perspective to have in your, your mid teens. I mean, you were, like you said, 15, yeah. 16 at, at the time to, to recognize, okay, I have these opportunities that my other siblings don't have and I need to take advantage of it so that I can, I can help them out. Like, I'm just, I'm just like blown away by just that, that type of awareness. And, and I can't imagine, did it feel like you had a weight on your shoulders when you left for that trip to Canada, knowing you weren't going to go back, but you were going to do what you could to try and create not only opportunities for yourself, but to benefit the rest of your family as well. A little bit, but honestly, watching my mom raising us, like all of us, and seeing like what she went through as trying to fight for us and like, you know, having, you know, like it's different in a village as a woman, you know, my mom never went to school and she taught herself how to uh, to read. And she said, no matter what, like I would never... All of you are going to school no matter what. If it means that I'm going to sell all my crops and cows, and which is essentially what she did. And she said, I don't want any of my, or like all the my girls and then my boys. It's like, you know, six girls and two boys. And it's like, all of you are the same to me. And I just like hearing my mom say that, even at such a young age, a village woman who never had an opportunity to go to school, I don't know if I would say I had a weight on my shoulder, but I was like, my mom is doing this for eight of us. And she never had this opportunity. To me, I was like, I was more exciting. Mm-hmm. It was, I was excited to be able to like, you know, as a family, we, we've always kind of worked together as a team. Like, you know, if, you know, if my brother had like a summer job, he would bring everything that he, he got at home. So we all worked as a team, like, so for me, I was like, I'm the team. Now I'm going to get to be the captain of this team, of this family. And then I'm going to go because I have that opportunity. I'm going to go do whatever I can, hope for the best. Because there was no guarantee, too, when I went to Canada. When I got to Canada, I thought that money was going to come easy. Everything was going to come easy. Because the only life that I've known at that point, it was the village life, where we thought, Things are hard there, but things in Canada are easy. So I had to learn everything when I got there. But even though I didn't see them for eight years, I never really lost, like, I never lost the focus. I knew exactly why I was there. Even Mm -hmm. if it was going to take 20 years, I knew I was going to do everything that I could. And when I was in high school, I started sailing mascaras in in my cousin's neighborhood. And I remember... I'm not the best salesperson because I don't like to bother people the same way I don't like to be bothered. But I remember going to this lady's house and at that time I didn't really speak English that well because I was in a French Catholic school and right outside of Toronto. I remember knocking on the door and I was like, I got mascara for you. She's like, I bought mascara from you a month ago. It's like, you think I finished it? I was like, I don't do makeup, so I don't know. <laughs> but I was like, okay, I'll give you another month, then I'll go back. And she just felt bad. But I feel like at that point, I was like, I'll sell mascaras, and then I'll help my family. And I'll send them money, because I wasn't making money running, because 
I wasn't going to, you know, how it is in high school. You just go to school and then run. And then after school, maybe, because I didn't know I was going to go to college. I was like, well, after high school, I'm just going to get a job and help my family. That was my plan. So at that time, sharing mascara was the right, you know, the, the only thing I could do. Yeah. So you've always had this attitude of I'll do what I got to do to, in one sense, get what you want or mm-hmm. to to do what you had set out to do, which was to, you know, create opportunity and provide for your family back home. Yeah. What was that transition like to Canada? You mentioned how you just went to a French Catholic school outside of Toronto. How long were you in Canada and what was that? initial period like when you were settling in there it was the first couple the first three months was really hard because also the way i left i basically escaped um from we stay at the university of ottawa at the dorms and i had been in touch with my cousin and my cousin too was confused because she's like you're so young are you sure you want to do this and i was like yeah i had my backpack I was like, I'm ready. Just come and pick me up. So I remember going to the back of the dorms with my backpack and left everything, um, you know, at my room because I didn't want them to obviously see that I was leaving. But I remember the drive from Ottawa to Toronto, I think it's six hours. And that was the longest because I feel like they were behind me. I kept turning around. And um, an hour into the drive, uh, my cousin was like, oh, you're fine. Don't worry about it. So and then she came back uh, a week later to get my stuff. And But I think getting used to being there alone and with my cousin, even though we didn't really know each other, that was the first time I met her because she was so much older than me. The first few months were really hard because I couldn't go to school right away. And I had to get my, I had to, to file for the asylum. And I remember going in front of the judges and, telling them my story. It was so crazy because I feel like sometimes I felt like I was in a movie because I feel like I wasn't really getting any break. It was like going through all these like papers and, you know, all these um, steps to get to, you know, to get like a, a resident card. And at that time I was like, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this. What did I get myself into? But having the support of my cousin too really helped and um, eventually I got into school, started finding, you know, meeting friends and, but also that's going from in my village to be in school where it was just all my friends, the village people to being in school where there was probably one or two other, you know, black people. So that was also really shocking for me, but, you know, I just learned to adjust and learn to get to know other people and realize there's not that much difference. And if there is a difference, it's just a culture difference. And a lot of people were really kind to me and my classmates kind of, I don't know, they just knew that I was uncomfortable and they did everything they could to make me feel comfortable. You obviously continued to run and compete. Did you join the school's track team at that point? Like how did that particular piece fit in at that time? Yeah, there was this really nice teacher who she loved running and she asked me if I wanted to join the group, um, the the school after school running and I did. But I remember that we had to pay to be part of it. So I only did it for six months and then I decided I wasn't going to keep going because I didn't have the money to pay. And like I said before, you know, I make sure I was also supporting my family and 
making sure that I wasn't spending any money that I didn't need to. But I did it the first time because I wanted to be noticed. Um, I wanted to get recruited in the U.S. So I feel like I've always had like kind of like a strategy. I'll do something just so that like I can put my name out there. And at that time, I feel like I really needed it to leave Canada too because I knew that it was going to be really hard to also keep running because running in Canada is not the most popular thing, especially at the university. So I did it once and I actually got approached by a bunch of college um, coaches from the U.S. and that's how I ended up here. What kind of communication did you have with your family back home at the time? Were you able to be in touch with them regularly. You mentioned how you hadn't seen them or you didn't see them for for eight years once you left, but were you in touch either via the phone or through mail or anything like that? I used to write letters to my siblings and my mom, but you know, back then it wasn't like, now you can just be on Instagram or Facebook or what's up, but that wasn't there back then. And so I would go even three months without talking to my family, but I feel like I had to learn to know that they're with me for mm-hmm. you know everything that I was doing. And then whenever I had a chance to you know write a letter to someone who's going there, and I, I I did that. It was more like old school writing them letters. And actually now when I go back and they show me old letters that I used to send, and I used to make everything like very sarcastic, and I would always like. Each of my siblings like write everything that they do, how funny they are, or make fun of them. And now it's for me a way to keep connected um, to them and just being you know that, that I still remember them. And then they'll write me back, and it was it was hard, but you know we made it work, and and it wasn't harder than what we were going through as kids and and what my mom had to always go back to like how strong my mom was and how resilient she was and so I think that kind of that kept me going and I never really really lost sight of that and then remember where I came from so I just always remember them and I remember started missing my mom my dad a lot because I feel like I never really got to grieve and I didn't really go to the funeral because I was so young and I think when I turned 18, I started missing my dad a lot and my family. And so, and then I just kind of thought of it the same way, like, you know, my dad would be so proud and my dad would be so happy. And that's kind of how I got through it. At the time, did your mom and siblings understand how you were trying to use this gift of, of running that you had to create opportunities for yourself and also to benefit them no I don't think my mom understood because I think you know being a mom she was very protective of us and she wanted all of us closely together but my older I think my brother and maybe my two sisters that were older they were understanding because they knew how hard it was even for them to get through school without having you know money buying uniform buying school supplies and then I think I, they knew that I was doing this for, you know, the family. So, and I knew that my mom was going to come along eventually. And she did. Once I went back and she she knew, like, at first she thought that I wasn't even alive. Every time I would talk to her, she would not believe it was me because I mean, my mom, you know, like, like she never really, you know, traveled. And I think when you 
in the village and the only place maybe you go to is the capital city. And it's kind of hard to understand that your daughter who is like, you know, 30 plus hours away by plane, you know, it's kind of hard to believe like what's happening at that point. But eventually we got on the same page and I knew it was going to be hard. And the first time I went back, I didn't really recognize my siblings and that was hard. We didn't have a lot in common. I felt like they were strangers to me, but we built back, you know, a relationship and, um, I don't know, I guess being siblings and being friends and that took time and we're still working on that. What's that relationship or those relationships, I should say, because I'm sure they're all a bit different, like today uh, with your mom and, and with your siblings? And you don't have to go through each one of them, but just in general, how has it evolved over the years? Oh, man. I mean, like I said, it wasn't an easy thing, but we all talk. Um, we all have obviously different relationships. We're all very close. Um, in 2017, after the New York City Marathon, I I flew to Rwanda, and my brother actually lives in Alexandria, Virginia, right now. But uh, we had a family reunion. All of us, all my siblings and my mom, for the first time, were together in like 14 or 15 years, and we spent 10 10 days in Rwanda. We, I rented this big house, like 10 bedroom home and we, we ate and drank and danced for 10 days. And I felt like, yeah, of course it doesn't replace all the years that we didn't see each other, but I feel like we were able to sit down and say, look at where we are as a, as a teamwork and we, we made it. And my mom just can leave like a queen and she definitely does. So <laughs> Uh, we have a really good relationship. We're all very close and very supportive of each other. How did that make you feel at the time, knowing that when you left, that's what you had set out to do, was to create opportunities like that, to make sure that everyone was better off because of your success? You mean when I was in Rwanda? Yeah. Oh, and that was... I would say 100% without any doubt. And I've, I've, I've been to a lot of places. I've done some really things I'm proud of, but that was the probably the happiest day of my life. Um, and just my mom got to be to fly, to be on a plane for the first time. She took a 30-minute flight from Rwanda to, uh, from Burundi to Rwanda. I actually landed there at the same time as her. She was going through, through customs at the same time as me. And it was like, it was surreal. Yeah. I mean, that was, it, it was amazing. Going back to Canada, what was that college recruitment process like for you? Had you been to the U.S. at all during your time in Canada? Did you have any idea where you wanted to go? Or were you just hopeful that an opportunity would pop up and you could take advantage of it? I, when I did that first year, I think it's called OFSA, is the equivalent of state championship. Mm-hmm. I think I actually might have won or I got top three. So there was like a bunch of college um, coaches that were there. So the head coach at the, from the University of Iowa gave me his card and got my name and then took it to the cross-country coach who happened to be my college coach, Elaine Anderson, and then put my name and my times and 
my accomplishments on that card and left it to him. And he reached out to me. And then he actually came to visit me. And that also was very, like, I wasn't sure what to do. I was so shy. I had never been to the U.S., never heard of the whole college system. So I've always just had faith that it was going to work out. And the fact that the coach, you know, my coach decided to fly to Toronto to see me and spend a weekend, I thought that meant a lot. And Mm -hmm. it was better than what I was with. I didn't really have any expectation. So when that happened, and I remember, I didn't even know if I was going to go to Iowa State or the University of Iowa. So I had no idea what I was doing. Aside from running did you know what you wanted to study when you went to college or did you look at it as running was your ticket just to get to the u.s and once you got there opportunities would possibly pop up for you i had no idea what i wanted to study running was definitely my that's the only thing that i i knew and but i also knew that I was going to do everything it took to pass, you know, because you have to be eligible to be able to compete too. So, I mean, also when I moved, when I came to the U.S., I didn't speak English because I went to a French high school. So I went to a community college for two years, took summer school, had friends that just helped me do homework. And like I told them, I know this is boring that we're doing homework, but I need this to be able to transfer to the University of Iowa. So, I mean, running was only my only, like, that was my only hope, honestly, was like, but I knew that everything was possible through running and just going back to think about, like, how my life was, my childhood was. I knew there was nothing that I couldn't do. What was the social transition like to the U.S.? You just mentioned how you didn't speak the language, but you were a a very talented athlete. People were helping you out. Was it? Was it more challenging than when you first went to Canada or did you feel a little more confident in yourself at that point just because you had been away from home for a little while and you were a few years older? Oh, I mean, being, you know, when I was, when I, when I came to the U.S., it was so much better. I, yeah, I had, I was way more confident. I, I started at that point thinking, okay, I need to use my background as like instead of feeling very, I wouldn't say insecure, but not feeling comfortable with what I come from or not, you know, speaking the language. But I also thought about how I speak my native language. I speak some French and I've been all over. I've been to the Olympics. I've been to France. I've been to the, all these places. So I start kind of using that as I am a lot more, you know, I had a lot more experiences than some of these people. It wasn't like I was, you know, I didn't want to, it wasn't like I didn't respect them, but anybody will come up to me and say, you come from Africa, do you guys have houses? And I'm like, yeah, we do. Like, I also travel all the way here. Have you even traveled anywhere? So I started like kind of building my confidence, but also I would just kind of get to know my friends and would talk about my background and I wanted to know their background. So it was a lot more social and confident and And yeah, it was, you know, it was completely different. And I think also running, you know, running at a division one or junior college, you get more confident as you go. You mentioned Lane Anderson a little while ago, and I know he was your college coach and correct me if I'm wrong. I believe he's been coaching you ever since. I'm interested in 
that relationship and how he helped you not only to develop as an athlete, but as a person in general? Yeah, I mean, from the moment he, you know, he came to Toronto and spent a weekend and never said a word to him, but it was just more like nonverbal communication. I mean, I owe, you know, my success, you know, if it wasn't for him, I really wouldn't be what I am today. I mean, of course, there were people before him that helped me, like um, Coach Hunter from the, he used to coach at the community college and Butler Community College, and now he's a coach at Wichita State. Uh, he was a big part of my success as well. But Lane Anderson was able to turn me into this confident Division One runner and um, getting fourth at the NCAA championship and as a team getting 10th place. And um, he was, you know, he became a family to me. I used to, you know, his kids, you know, were babies when I got there. So we are family. And, yeah, I mean, he's he's done so much for me and, I, I, I honestly can't imagine what, I don't know, I guess what life it would be if it wasn't in my life. So, How were you thinking about life toward the end of your collegiate career? You were very successful. You just mentioned you were fourth at NCAAs. Did you know that you would have an opportunity to run professionally? Were you thinking about anything else at, at that time? Like, What was your mindset like at that point? I didn't even know I don't think I knew much about professional running and I I knew I was going to keep running because I loved running but I didn't really think of it as oh I'm going to make leaving off of running but I was also really okay with moving on and not like getting a job too I think I did a part-time job when I graduated because my running at that point wasn't really that great either even though my college career was successful but I also was not never um and I was never national champion I wasn't getting recruited right outside college but I told my coach that I really wanted to try marathon in 2009 and not graduate in 2008 so my first marathon was Chicago and I think I ran 239 and I mean 239 you're not going to become a professional runner running 239 so I just got a part-time job I kept running and well, I wasn't really sure, but I knew I was going to keep running. But when I had a, uh, an agent right after I graduated and I worked with him for six months, if he ever listened to this, I want to let him know that I forgive him. But he told me that I would never make it as a runner because I was too demanding. And then I was like, because I and I was like, because I know what I want, that makes me demanding. And I was like, okay. But I always love people like that because I want to prove them wrong. And um, I've been working with Brendan Riley since 2010, basically. I think that was my debut in um, in Chicago, not 2009, it was 2010. Mm-hmm. And I got my first shipment from ASICS. I wasn't getting any money, no contract. But I was so excited. And I remember... The first time I got uh, my uniform to go to the University of Iowa, I was really excited because I remember the process and what it took for me to get there. And I couldn't wait to compete uh, my first collegiate race at Iowa. And then it was the same as running Chicago in A6 uniform, even though I was getting paid. And I think once I, you know, I got my contract, which was small in 2011. And I mean, I've been with them for almost, I think, 11 years already. 
that was never really a dream of mine. It just happened again through running and just believing that as long as I surround myself with the right people, that it was going to happen. What was your first like post-collegiate breakthrough? You mentioned the 239 marathon debut. You're not going to make a professional career off of that, but was there one particular race that you had that kind of gave you hope or showed you what was possible if you continued to stay with it? Yeah, I did the running as you know, I was doing a year before, uh, I did this like big, um, Fama beach to beacon and I placed a thing in top five, all of them. And I think I went on to get second behind Magda. I think it might've been 2011. And I was just loving the process and I was feeling really good. That's when I knew I was like, now I'm starting to feel like I did when I was doing my last year in college and I was getting fourth and I was being competitive. I was enjoying it and it was no pressure. And then I think also after that year and getting like bonuses from ASICs and I was like, this is exciting. This is, you know, to me, it's never really about how much money I'm making, but it was like, being able also to make leaving leaving off of something that I'm really enjoying it, enjoying. So I think after the 2011 season and then 2012, I was just like improving every year. And I knew that that was it. I just needed to keep working hard and stay consistent that I was going to keep just having a breakthrough. In 2012, you went back to the Olympics. It was in London that year. I think you ran a marathon 2012 and then 10,000 in 2016. What was it like for you to go back to the Olympics 12 years later and to be just a more mature person and athlete at that point to know you could actually go there and be somewhat competitive? That was so exciting too. I mean, I had just graduated from, I mean, I guess uh, four years after graduating from the University of Iowa never really had a dream of graduating from college, but also going back to the Olympics after graduating. Um, when I'm very mature, really comfortable, I remember I can wait to wear my traditional clothes for the opening ceremony. And I was just so happy and confident. And um, and I think I ran a PR there and I was like 31st. I was, that really built my confidence. And I felt like, it showed me that even though I was so nervous about the whole, you know, move to Canada, never thought I would ever go back to represent Burundi. And it was such a really good moment. And yeah, I mean, it was really happy. I know you're based in Flagstaff now and have really established yourself in that community. But after college, did you bounce around at all in terms of like where you were based and where you were training or have you generally been based in Flagstaff the entire time? Um, After college, I actually stayed in Iowa for extra six years. So I was in Iowa a total of eight years. And I, you know, I, I went through some personal life. It wasn't really easy. I actually was married. um, And in 2014, I was just going through a lot. And I didn't know what to do. And coming from like a Catholic big family, I wasn't going to tell my mom and call my mom and say, hey, mom, I don't think this is working. So I decided I came to train to come to train here because I was really good friends with Janet Balcom. Mm-hmm. And I just needed uh, four weeks um, just to get away. And I knew 
um, Abdi was training here. We had been friends. I mean, I met Abdi in 2000 through my my teammate who went to U of A. Um, so I just came here for four weeks and just to get away. And then I, when I went back to Iowa, I knew that I, I don't know, I guess my marriage and relationship was over. Um, I actually never even, I don't think I ever talked about this, but, um, and I just kind of went back and packed my car and just drove a week later. And that was it. Never. Um, no looking never, back. Never looking back. It was like, at that time was harder, but now that I think about it, it was really the best decisions. Like one of the best decisions I ever made. And I've been here for almost eight years. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I know in 2017, I believe, is when you became a U.S. citizen. When did that process start for you? That process started um, a long time ago. So when I left Canada, I was about to become a citizen of Canada. Mm -hmm. And because I only had a resident card, I either... I was supposed to either, I had a plan to really finish school and go back to Canada, but I meet, I met my ex uh, husband in college. And then, so we got married, we decided we're going to go back to Toronto. And then, so that's basically, it was, it started through marriage. But then when we split, I decided that I was going to stop the process and just move here. And then it was going to take a lot longer. But for me, you know, at that point it was like, I wasn't really going to risk my happiness or when things weren't meant to be. And we both were on the same page, honestly. And I feel like I just came here and settled and restarted the process again. And then I ended up get, getting that citizenship in 2017. Looking way back to when you were 16 years old and you left your home country for Canada, knowing that you weren't going to return. I mean, on some level, you have no idea what the future holds, but what do you think 16-year-old Diane would say if she had a crystal ball to look ahead and, you know, 15, 16 years later or whatever it was, you're a professional distance runner, you have U.S. citizenship, you have done what you set out to do for your family, and you have a home base in the U.S.? Oh, man, I think I, the 16-year-old me would have slapped. I wouldn't even believe, like, I don't know, any of this. I don't know. I wouldn't even call them accomplishment, but I don't think I would ever really dream of that. I don't know. I would just kind of laugh because I never even thought it was, like, a possibility. It's just crazy. Has your mom or any of your siblings been to the U.S. to visit you? Yeah, my brother um, actually. He's in Virginia. He, yeah, he's in Virginia, and he's he came to um, Flagstaff uh, twice. It was the first time with just him. The second time he came with his wife and three kids. Um, and um, but my sister, I have a, two sisters in Canada, and I'm trying to get my mom to come and visit. Hopefully, Christmas or next spring. So, yeah. What would it mean for you to have her at your house and be able to show her, look at this life that I've built for myself? 
Oh man, I'm trying not to get too excited about it because um, I'm afraid if I'm too excited it will not happen. But I am a believer it's going to happen because everything else that I, you know, set out to do ha has happened. Maybe not the same pace that I wanted, but I've been patient enough. It would mean a lot to be able to just, you know, see her sitting in the living room and just show her this is the home I bought. I never thought I. You know, I own a home here, or I have everything that I have. I want, I want her to see my friends and just see that I have a really good life. Even though I wish, you know, we could all live together, but that's unfortunately not how life is. And sometimes I do feel guilty because I feel like all these years, being 37, I've only really spent 16 years with her, and even then I was too young. I feel like we didn't really connect as mother and daughter. But we're still building a relationship. But I feel like she gets, she's living a really good life now. And I am too. And somehow we make it work. And we talk a lot because of what she has what's up. So, <laughs> uh, so and then all her kids are so successful. I mean, all my siblings are very successful. Um, they're doing really well. And they're smart. And yeah. So... And I know it wasn't, I wasn't, I'm not the only one who, you know, worked hard for the family. It was, like I said, it's a teamwork. It's pretty wild to, to think about early 2000s when you left and you're writing these letters back home. And like, if you were able to get on the phone, like that would be a big deal. And now today, I mean your family can have smartphones, you can communicate instantly via WhatsApp and just have that more constant communication. I mean, I've, I've never really been in a, a long distance situation like that, but it, it's really fascinating to think about your scenario where your family is so far away and you went, you know, years without seeing them, months without talking to them. And now, you know, even though you're far apart, you can have, you know, a real time relationship. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, some of my, it's crazy because some of my siblings, we talk every single day and I know people, you know, have issues with, um, you know, social media, with the mental health, but, and just being on it and it's not good for them. But for me, I see it as like, you kidding? I mean, you know, 20 years ago, I was struggling and trying to get a hold of my family. And I think it just depends on situation you're in and your background and um i don't know like your privileges and but to me this is all like the whole technology thing is amazing to me that i am able to connect with them as if they're actually close to me and i'm really thankful for that a few more things before we wrap up this conversation. You've mentioned Abdi a few times. Abdi Abdurrahman is a five-time U.S. Olympian, former guest of this podcast, and your partner. How long have the two of you officially been an item? Uh, we're coming on seven years. And you and I went back and forth as we were setting up this conversation. We were, we were joking about Abdi, and he's a, he's a pretty fun guy to to joke around with and joke around to, about what what is one of your favorite Abdi stories that most people probably haven't heard? Ooh, um, it's kind of hard to 
come up with the story that is my favorite because his stories are literally like 30 seconds. So it's kind of hard to even tell his stories. Um, but like you said, he's, I mean, maybe I'm biased, but he's probably the funniest man that I know, the funniest person that I know because even all these years, I really never know what to get from him. But um, a quick one, he might, hopefully he doesn't listen to this. He was traveling back from Atlanta uh, and he was at the airport and then he called me and he's like, hey, I'm just hanging out with my friend, you know, before we board the flight. And I was like, I mean, for those that know Abdi, Abdi's like, doesn't have any enemies and he really likes everybody. He's very social. Um, but He's like he, a big kid too. He is a big kid, um, which is sometimes could be annoying, but... <laughs> Uh, he called me, he calls me, he goes, yeah, I'm hanging out with my friend. I said, he says, hi, and he knows you. And I was like, I'm not going to say his name, but he goes, I was like, who's, who's your friend? And he goes, what's your name again? I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Over the phone. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is embarrassing. And then he tells him, you know, he tells him his name and I go, oh yeah, I know him. He's like, oh yeah, I knew you knew him. And I'm like, oh, that's embarrassing. It's really embarrassing. But he doesn't remember he's not good at memorizing like people's name and uh but and then we go i remember a couple times we went to um vacation with uh some of my of our friends and you know he likes to kind of do his own thing and it's the same with me and he will just disappear for a couple hours and he comes back and goes guys meet my friends this guy is from russia and we're gonna hang out tomorrow and i'm like this is just so random you'll come up with some crazy stuff and it's just kind of like honestly I, I there's so many stories i don't even know i wouldn't even know where to start I, I what to get from him that could be uh i mean he's got a whole book out about it called abdi's world where you could probably read many of those stories that could be a whole podcast series it's just abdi abdurrahman telling stories so maybe when he when he hangs up his own racing shoes that can be his uh his next venture is just telling stories from his life and career yeah, I know. He also lies to me about little things every single day, and I believe them. And he's just like, how can you believe this all these years? I'm like, I don't know how much, but I can't, I don't know if he's being serious or if he's joking. Never know. Last two things I, I want to touch on. You're at an interesting point of your career and, and life right now because you're still competing at a high level, but you are also working as a realtor and starting to sell properties. I'm interested in what drew you to that and when that process started. You know, it was like during the pandemic, I, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm the person who's freaking out about, Oh, what am I going to do after, you know, running? But also another part of me always like, I was like, I need to do something that I really enjoy that is kind of similar to running but also, I want to be challenged a little bit. I can't, I've been doing this running thing for 20 plus years. So, I mean, at some point, it's not like running is not challenging, but I do want to learn another business side of things. And um, we're just, you know, I had some injuries since 2018 and I kind of been struggling and I just needed to find something. I actually didn't come up with that. Um, Abdi was like, Have you ever thought about being a real estate agent? And I was like, What? That's weird. Why would you say that? She's like, he's like, 
I think you'd be good. You like to hang out with people. You like to help people. And I was like, hey, you're right. Finally, say something nice. Okay, I'll help you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He says nice things. And I was like, okay, you know what? I am going to look up the, you know, class information. And I went online, bought the book, and, you know, um, got the book and came home. I was just like, oh, my gosh, that's a big book. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I need you to support me. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I just started and took the test and it was a really challenging because I hadn't been in school for so long. But again, it was another challenge. You know, me, some people were like, it's going to be a really hard test. I know so many people that failed a couple of times and I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to do it as many times as I can and as I want and I'm going to pass and I'm going to become successful real estate agent and on top of running. So. Are there any lessons that you've learned from running that you found you've been able to apply to this pursuit of being a real estate agent? Yeah. Cause you know, sometimes I feel like I don't necessarily know what I'm doing. So is when I was trying to leave home at 16, I didn't know what I was doing. I just put my feet in everything and I trusted the process. I trusted the people that I was with. And then whenever I had gut feeling, bad feeling about something, I didn't do it. I have a really good intuition. I always follow my heart and that's what I'm doing with this. So I feel like running has really helped me with everything that I do in life. I mean, I cannot, I just feel like there's nothing I can really, I cannot do as long as I put my heart and soul and all the hard work. And if it wasn't for running and maybe my mom, I I don't think I would have ever figured this out. Last question. What is it about running that you value the most? Um, The people I met along the way that, you know, became my family. Because, I mean, I mentioned my coach and um, my family, but honestly, it took a village to get me to what I am today. I mean, I've met so many people in the last 20 plus years and like not having my family close to me, I have learned to create my own family along the way. Um, whether I, the, the places I lived in Kansas, Iowa, Toronto, all these places I go to do races, I just the community, um, the people, um, I just don't think you can just do it alone. And I always ask help when I need it. I'm very vulnerable when it comes to, I go for a run, I feel at like homesick, I will say it. I need to cry, I'll cry. And people, I don't feel like people really make fun of me or judge me. I just feel very supported and loved. I love it. That is a great place to wrap up this conversation. I've enjoyed it immensely. I am excited to continue following your career, hopefully for at least a few more years. You're one of the athletes that I have followed the longest in this sport. It's been amazing to see what you've accomplished during your career. And I can't thank you enough for joining me on the Morning Shakeup podcast. Well, thank you so much for giving me the space to feel comfortable talking about my journey. And I'm a huge fan as well. And keep doing a great job. All right.
right, that'll do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to New Balance for help making it possible. If you're looking for a workhorse to run most of your miles in, look no further than the Fresh Foam X 1080 V12. This shoe has the perfect blend of cushioning and responsiveness. It's lightweight, it transitions smoothly, it has the most streamlined fit to accommodate a wide variety of foot types, and it holds up to heavy mileage week in and week out. The Fresh Foam X 1080 V12 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out as always to my man, John Summerford. He's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to my right-hand man, Chris Douglas, for handling sponsorship sales and various other duties, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys help keep things running smoothly. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And in it, you'll get a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for you this week. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.